0: Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you
1: deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode
0: shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more
1: joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Today, we are so excited to have Edward Sullivan here. So... Edward is someone, uh, Rebecca and I both read his book this year. I happen to have a connection (laughs) to one of his clients from one of my friends, and we literally stalked him until we could get him on the phone, uh, get some wisdom from him. And now we are uh, so excited to have him here so that we can share some of his wisdom with you guys. If you are not familiar with Edward, Edward Sullivan is the CEO and managing partner at Velocity Coaching. His 25 year career as an executive coach and political consultant has taken him around the globe, coaching and advising startup founders, Fortune 500 CEOs, and heads of state of foreign nations. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post. Forbes, Fast Company, Inc., USA Today, and more. He holds an MBA from the Wharton School and an MPA from the Harvard Kennedy School. Edward, we are so excited to have you here.
2: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you.
1: Yay. Of course. So, you know, Rebecca and I, because obviously, you are sort of an OG in the executive coaching space, working with really impressive, really uh, phenomenal clients. Um, we we so look up to you. But before we kind of talk more about that, about your uh, approach to coaching and about your book, how did you find your way into this field? What was the early uh, days of your career like and how did you kind of get to this uh, place in your professional journey?
2: You know, it's funny. I like to say that I was drafted into coaching. <laughs> And what that means is I had never considered coaching as a career. In fact, when I uh, was graduating from the, uh, the Kennedy School, one of my friends told me she was going into coaching and I thought that was kind of a quacky thing to do. I was like, coaching, what are you talking about? Like, that sounds kind of weird because I didn't know a whole lot about coaching. Coaching was maybe like exclusively like life coaching at that point. Um, and, you know, in like the 2000s, Coaching was really reserved for like fixing problems, right? It was like, there's this problem child in the business or someone isn't really figuring it out and like, oh gosh, let's get them some coaching, you Mm -hmm. know? And it was like the last thing you did before firing people, right? And then later in my career, I guess about 10 years ago, one of my friends from business school randomly asked me to coach her (laughs) and I again, I was kind of like, well, I don't do that. That's you know a little quacky. Um, and she said, no, no, you've been coaching me for years, but I've just never paid you. <laughs> and now I have budget through work and I like, I'd love to make this official. And she was really insistent and I, all the resistance and I eventually couldn't say no. And it was the best decision I ever made in my life. So I, I credit her for kind of seeing in me a gift and a career and a path that I hadn't seen myself. And we actually talk about that in book. Um, uh, Julia Oberatman is this uh, wonderful classmate of mine who, um, who gave me the gift of coaching in a sense.
1: Oh, that's so beautiful. When someone really sees in you what you're capable of that maybe you hadn't considered. And uh, when we spoke, you kind of told me a a similar story about your business partner that you, you know, you had only really wonderful and glowing things to say about him. And, and I'd love to hear or or I'd love for you to tell uh, our listeners a little bit about how you guys met, how you guys got together and um, about your um, relationship dynamic in running Velocity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in short, I call John Baird the national treasure, right? Mm -hmm. He's like one of these just like incredible human beings. He uh, is like the, the quintessential grandfather. He's almost 80 years old and he has more energy than I do. I get off the phone with John sometimes and I'm exhausted because he's just has so many ideas and so much energy. And he's like, we have to make this connection, this and that. And it's like, um, I, am inspired by him every single day. And we met actually through another friend who was, um, a dear friend of mine in San Francisco, who'd been working with John previously. And he was kind of transitioning out of coaching. And he said, you two would really get along great. Right. I was running my own kind of one person coaching shop here in New York. John and Ben were running a, a, Velocity out of San Francisco. And they said, why don't we combine forces and make more of a national firm Oh, and Edward, why don't you run the business? Right. (laughs) So, um, in a sense they bought me out and we combined forces and John and I have been like, you know, pedal to the metal for the last seven years working together. And it's been an incredible journey.
0: Wow. Wow. I love I love how so much of your story is about making connections and reaching out to people and starting a conversation and kind of, seeing what possibilities and magic can unfold. Um, yeah. And I know that that's yeah. a big part of, of coaching as well. And, you know, in in much more eloquent words, what you about in your book, Leading with Heart, which Amanda and I both read this year, we loved it. I don't think we've ever talked about a book more to each other um, and we were really inspired by it. So I'm curious what inspired you and John to write this book.
2: You know, it was probably three, almost now four years ago when we first had a conversation about writing a book. And that conversation was inspired by the fact that we felt like we were doing something a little differently than other coaching firms. We were, um, you know, building a philosophy for leadership that felt just a little different. Um, A lot of firms are very tactics focused. They're very like, here's how to run a business. Here's how to make a billion dollars. You know, it's all about just like, driving revenue. And, and that's all important. But we realize that you can do that and have great relationships and enjoy the journey and take care of yourself and build nurturing cultures in businesses, you know, better for worse, just to share a little bit about my story. I grew up in a family where my father didn't love his job. Right. And he didn't feel respected and treated well at work. And, you know, sometimes he would bring that energy home. Right. So like my home life, was a reflection of my father's work life, in a sense, and I realized that you know if we can help corporate America and you know corporations around the world build cultures where more people feel great at work, we're going to have better bottom line outcomes because they're going to feel more resourceful, more creative. They're going to have better communication, and there's going to be this incredible um, um, secondary effect of there will be happier homes, right? Happier households, happier children, right? I think a lot of the societal ills we have now stem from people not loving what they do and not feeling proud about what they do, yeah. right? So in a sense, this book and, and our work in general has a much higher purpose than simply helping businesses succeed. It's really helping families succeed. And we thought we're not gonna be able to do that one-on-one coaching, there's only a couple of us. We only have 30 coaches in the firm. We cannot. We can't work with, you know, a million people. But we can reach a million people through writing a book. So that was the original impetus of getting this message out there. Wow,
0: a real expansion of this beautiful purpose that you shared about yeah. impacting something far beyond work. Um, you know, the, the the description of your book goes even deeper on this purpose that you have, which is to encourage leaders to ignore outdated leadership hacks and embrace introspection, growth, and real connection, Um, which, as you mentioned, this is such a unique perspective in a community of CEOs and leadership teams and boards of directors that I imagine can be really cutthroat. Um, so I yeah. imagine that this approach can be both jarring and refreshing to people at the same time. Do any of your clients ever push back on your approach to coaching or do you tend to attract the types of people who would be drawn to it?
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, if if we sense pushback, we know that we're, we're doing the right work, right? We know that we're like pushing people to an edge that feels uncomfortable. And, um, you know, we live in a world of, of acts and you know, we, we wrote that 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 sentence in that paragraph specifically to push back against the idea that there's a simple cut to everything you know a lot of people ask me today about like other coaches who have like how-to guides like this is like this incredible tactical Google doc where you can figure out here's the script for every single conversation you should you could ever have in your business and we think that that's fine and and good and all you can find that on you know, Harvard Business Review. and I think someone shared that with me as well. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like there's a lot of that going on right now. And people are like, oh my God, great. I don't have to do any of the hard work. And I don't know. I don't think the shortcuts really work, right? I think that um, through the coaching experience, you have not just an, an experience of learning how to figure out how to run the business, but learning how to manage yourself, right? Learning how to manage the relationships on your team, learning how to really deeply build trust at an interpersonal level that can only come from having these connected conversations. It's not about repeating a script. You can tell when someone is like, you know, like they just read um like nonviolent communication or they just read about like crucial conversations, like these like incredible, really important books that kind of help guide us. And there's like frameworks for having conversations but you can tell when they haven't fully internalized the learning yet and made it their own. And they're just like literally repeating a script they read on a Google doc that morning. And, and I think that that doesn't build trust. It actually erodes trust long-term.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, you are, you are speaking to our hearts. This conversation is making me, <laughs> yeah. this conversation is making me so happy. So um, you know, Rebecca and I, we're we're newer in the, the coaching industry, right? We launched our business last year. Um, I've been coaching officially really since uh, well, I, I started in 2019, but really in earnest, it's been like a solid full-time year. But when we read your book, it was so affirming that you who and and, and I won't make you drop any names, <laughs> but for anyone listening, if you grab their book, you will learn the clients that Edward and John work with are people you've heard of. They are really the titans of industry. And so in reading your book, I was like, wow, okay. The big guys, like the guys who really know what they're talking about, have been around, been doing this a while, working with um, sort of the best of the best, are big guys um, and
2: girls, right? Guys
1: and guys and <laughs> girls. Oh, yes, guys and girls, absolutely. Um, are are you know are are leaning into this approach that isn't, you know, isn't this cutthroat approach, right? Isn't this sort of stereotypical, really aggressive, work to the bone, top-down leadership, and self-care, rest, mental health, Mm
2: -hmm. pleasure,
1: joy, you know, all of the sort of things that you do that maybe uh, seem sort of like life coaching stuff or fluff. We talk a lot about it because we think it's really important, you know, Um, and when you and I spoke on the phone, Uh, One of the things that you were like, oh, I really want to mention that, you know, leaders these days, really successful leaders these days are actually taking care of themselves in a holistic way. So I'd love for you to speak to that shift and kind of what you're seeing um, on on your side of of the business.
2: Yeah. You know, there's there's an old saying, um, I think it was Bill Monroe, who was a uh, bluegrass player, famous bluegrass player said, we tune because we care. Right. If musicians just got up and played out of tune instruments, the music would be really hard to listen to. And we think about executives and founders and CEOs. They need to tune their instrument on a daily basis as well. You know, um, many of the best leaders in the world they spend an hour or two every morning with whatever their morning routine is. Right. And I don't believe in the like, oh, if Oprah does it, I need to do it, or You know, if, you know, like these are the five things every single executive needs to do before sunrise. Like, I don't believe in that. I believe everyone should figure out whatever their own process is for tuning their instrument. But just getting really honest about that. You know, getting very clear. One of my favorite clients, uh, and all my clients are favorite clients, don't worry. But uh, Justin McCloud of Hinge, right? He gets up at 6 a.m. He has an hour of yoga. He has a half hour meditation. And then he has this like little like you know, virtual reality kickboxing thing he does every morning. So when he gets into the office, he's like ready to go. He's tuning the instrument. Mm-hmm. Right. And um a lot of founders, especially young founders, right? They they believe in this mythology of like sleeping under their desk, not um not really getting much sleep, you know, eating soylent for three meals a day, like all of this just like kind of like grinding themselves up to to build the business. And they come to us and they say like, you know, I'm really depressed, like I'm really hard, I'm really burning out, but I just need to work through that, right? You know, I need to just, you know, keep on pushing because that's what Mark Zuckerberg did or that's what Steve Jobs did. And like, I don't think that's really how great companies are built, right? Great companies are built by people who are fully resourced, who take care of themselves. Um, You can kind of taste it in the soup when the chef is in a bad mood, right? There's like an old it's an old yeah. story about like the, the, the monks tasting, you know, the mm. sadness, the chef uh, that was working with them at the monastery. And like, we can almost taste in the product when the team that built it was burned out, where they were, you know, not kind of um, taking care of themselves. They weren't like in their most like creative, you know, resourced place, right? And um, so a lot of the work we do with new clients is helping them establish a, a baseline, a baseline self-care routine. Whatever it is for them, I don't prescribe it. I don't say like this is what all of our clients need to do. We don't do that kind of cookie cutter operation here. We work with them to figure out what works best for them. But it's 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 um it's fundamental to our work because yeah. if someone isn't fully resourced, if they're not taking care of themselves, they can't do the deeper transformational work that we want to do with them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, you know, you mentioned a couple of times that you don't really prescribe specific things or, you know, kind of give specific recommendations. But when you have, because, you know, I'm sure people, some people listening to this might be burnt out, might be overworked, whether they are, you know, running a company or just working at a company and they might have no idea, like where to start, how to even know how to figure out, like, what should I do? Right. Like, where, where can I begin? Are there any um, like introspection tools, or I don't? I hesitate to use the term hacks, but um, mm. any tools or practices that you that you offer to your clients so that they can even start to figure out what might help bring them back from the edge of burnout, overwork, you know, all of that.
2: Yeah, I like to say that everyone should get really curious about four areas of self care: sleep, nutrition movement and stillness.
1: Mm.
2: Right. And if you can figure out what works for you in those four domains, you'll put together your own customized recipe for tuning your own instrument, right? Everyone needs sleep. Everyone needs, some people need more than others. I need an incredible amount of sleep to (laughs) feel like I can function. Right. And then the quality of my sleep matters. Like I got this little ring a couple of years ago and it's taught me so much, the aura ring about what influences Uh, the quality of my sleep, right? Everyone has their own like special requirements for nutrition. When founders get really curious about how caffeine affects their performance, how certain kinds of food affect their performance, right? They can figure out what works best for them. And the same thing for movement. I go to the gym and move iron around. That's my, that's my, my, my movement, right? You too, right? yeah. And and then some people say like, I don't like the gym. I want to go running or I want to do classes. Great figure out whatever it is for you, but make sure you've got your own thing figured out for movement. And then also I like to talk about stillness, stillness being meditation and mindfulness. You know, it's been proven for uh, not now we're scientifically proven for the last 10 years, but anecdotally proven for thousands of years, that meditation just works in reducing anxiety, helping us have a greater focus and um, helping us just like show up as our best selves. So if people can figure out what works for them optimally in those four domains, I think they're well on their way.
1: Yeah. Now as sort of a, like a follow-up to that, and this is is a little bit of a self-serving question because obviously we're working with clients all the time, but I think it's wonderful for leaders, CEOs, executives to be focusing on these four areas, really taking care of themselves. How do they start then to like institutionalize that? Right. And like drive that down the org chart so that not only are, you know, are, is the person at the top resourced, but they've actually um, created, because I think a lot of team building HR practices, right? They're outdated, they don't work, they don't make sense. What are mm-hmm. like the smart CEOs who care about this kind of stuff doing nowadays to help their organizations become, you know, tasty soup makers without a lot of misery and, and burnout kind of, you know, <laughs> sprinkled sprinkled in, in in the soup of whatever they're making.
2: Yeah, I think first it comes down to being conspicuous in their self-care, right? So like a lot of leaders feel like they need to just like show up at the office, perfect, this whole myth of executive presence, and then they just like perform and then go home. And their personal life is something that is kind of, you know, hidden from the organization. Um, I think that leaders need to be very conspicuous about how much time they're spending with their families, talk about how much sleep they get, talk about their self-care routine, not to be prescriptive to everyone, but to let people know if you like anything about how I show up at the office, it's because I do this to take care of myself. And I encourage you to do something to take care of yourself too, right? Obviously there's programs you can have and like now people get you know $150 a month for the gym membership, like whatever it is, you can build infrastructure around supporting people's self-care. But I think it all begins with the leader showing that I do this too right? Yeah. Same thing with taking vacation. The leader has to conspicuously take vacation and then unplug, Yeah. Right? has to basically say, I'm going to be offline unless the entire house is burning down. Please don't contact me. But yeah. the leader is on vacation and is on Slack until 2am and is taking calls, you know, from the beach while like their family is, his or her family is trying to uh, enjoy um, some recreation. That's not a good, that's not leading by example right? That's not showing people what good rest and unplugging looks like. Because all the research has shown that, you know, people who take time away from the office, who recharge, they actually come back and perform better.
0: I could not agree more with that one. (laughs) I think think Amanda and I have both worked in environments where leadership took vacation and was constantly sending emails, from yeah. the pool. And that um, as a you know mid to senior level employee, it really took away permission for anyone else to take vacation at the company. And yeah. it really perpetuated a state, a state of burnout. So um, I deeply appreciate that one on a personal level. Something, something that you just mentioned was the myth of executive presence. And yeah. last week, I this is top of mind. Last week I was perusing LinkedIn and there was a conversation happening about what does executive presence mean to you? And many of the answers kind of perpetuated this myth that you just talked about. And so I would love to hear from you. How do you define executive presence?
2: That's interesting. Um, I normally define executive presence as, you know, this myth we're perpetuating about what good leadership looks like, right? And if you think about it, a lot of what we think of today as like the tropes of executive presence came out of like the fifties and sixties, like the madman era of like looking good, being perfect, having polished that, you know, firm handshake. It's kind of like the white businessman, frankly, mm-hmm. right? And um, and I think that what ended up happening is we had the, this, 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 this terrible sameness um, occurring throughout the, uh, especially American workforce of everyone dressing the same, everyone acting the same, everyone trying to solve problems and do presentations in the same way. And that just flies in the face of the face of everything we know about the importance of diversity, uh, diversity of thought, diversity of uh, working styles, right? The more diverse your team, the more likely you are to surface problems earlier, the more likely you are to come up with creative solutions. And I think what we've seen in the last five, 10 years is a really hard pushback against uh, traditionally executive presence um, look, seeming or looking leaders by a new workforce that is looking for authentic presence, right? So I like to talk much more about authentic presence. Like, are you showing up as yourself? Are you showing up with all of your foibles and all of your questions, right? Are you able to say to your team, I don't know what to do right now, I need help, right? Because again, when a leader can be conspicuous and not having all the answers, he or she empowers others to step up and get more creative, right? Um, the the perfect leader tells everyone else that they need to waste energy trying to be perfect too, right? Mm-hmm. How much energy are we wasting at the office trying to be someone we're not, trying to hide what's going on at home, you know, being like all um, hyper focused on our work outfits or on how we're showing up or what do we look like on Zoom or like, do I have the perfect background? Like if we're putting all of our energy into appearances, right? It's all the energy that we're not putting into solving problems at work, into building great relationships with our colleagues, etc. cetera. So we're pretty firm in our, in our work and in this coaching, uh, this coaching business we have, pushing back against the whole idea of executive presence and helping our leaders and our clients get really comfortable being their authentic selves because that's what people respond best to.
0: Yeah, I I love that authentic presence. So if someone is listening right now and they're like, oh shit, I have an executive presence and I don't know how to step out of that role, (laughs) right? And now they're, and they, they literally don't know how to be authentic because they've been trained their entire lives to have this executive presence of perfection. Where do you suggest they start, or what practices do you suggest that they explore to cultivate authentic presence?
2: There's some people who just naturally have that, like Clark Kent kind of presence. You know, like they have the deep voice and their broad shoulders, and they look great. And there's nothing wrong if you that is your natural image that you portray to the world, right? And there's nothing wrong with in times of uncertainty in the business, getting up in front of people and conveying calm and you know, being able to communicate clearly and bring people together and, and make them feel safe, right? So there's nothing wrong with like employing certain elements of this idea of executive presence. If it feels natural, or that's really what the moment is called for. But with people who find themselves expending an, an unreasonable amount of energy, on their image at the office or you know this, this presence that they're conveying, I would ask them, what takes the most energy, right? Where do you spend the most time with this whole thing? Because let's start there, right? Are you really spending an hour in the morning figuring out what your outfit's gonna be before you get on a Zoom call? Like, I don't know if anyone really cares, right? Um, are you spending like a lot of time psyching yourself up in the mirror before going in to do a, a, a presentation? You know, how about just going into the boardroom and saying, like, "Wow, you know, I'm I'm a little nervous. You know, just naming it, I'm a little nervous uh, giving this presentation, but I appreciate all your support, and I think I've got really something important to communicate right here. You know, you don't have to be perfect to be compelling."
1: Um. So. We first of all, we're like, we're just buzzing. Rebecca and I are so excited to hear you, um, to hear you talking about this because once again, we work with a lot of um young, sort of up-and-coming uh CEOs, leaders, right? People who are um either kind of like from the earlier millennial or Gen Z generation. So I'm curious when you are sort of still making a name for yourself, learning as you go, right? Maybe you have people that work for you who are older than you, more experienced than you. And this goes, if you're, you know, the CEO or if you're just managing somebody who maybe is older than you, I'm curious You know, when people don't know something, right? When they don't know, when when they're in charge and yet they don't know. And then this is, I have a million client examples I'm thinking of here where somebody founded a company and they're now in charge of every single department, but they've never done marketing or they have no idea what, you know, about tech. How do you help people give a great answer to, I don't know, when they are still kind of, you know the leader, right. And they don't want to lose people's confidence. They don't want people to start to feel like, oh, Hey, the guy in charge has no idea what he's doing. How do you say, Mm -hmm. I don't know in a way that still, um, you know, commands respect and, 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 um, doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't create like concern for the people that are looking to you for guidance.
2: Hmm. No, that's interesting. I I'll be honest. I kind of question the premise of, of the question Uh, Mm. Only because I feel like nothing develops trust faster than the three words. I don't know. Right. If you can admit conspicuously, like, oh, this isn't a problem I've dealt with before. Who can help us? Right. Yeah. Um, You know, maybe this is a problem we should be figuring out together. Right. And just like being really open and honest about it. It's when we start faking it. When we, we lose trust. Right. It's when we start BSing like this whole idea. Fake it till you make it. Like I, I love that that rings and it rhymes. But it's there's there, there's nothing. There's no worse advice than this whole idea of faking it till you make it. Right? Yeah. It's the the leader who can get up and again I, I've used this word a number of times conspicuously because cons- to be conspicuous is to be honest, mm-hmm. right? It's to not hide, right? And it's to say, huh, all right, this is really interesting. I haven't dealt with this situation before, but I'm so happy. To be working with such experienced people on this team that maybe you have experienced this before let's work on this together all those people on the team now feel huh my experience is valued here as opposed to this 23 year old is trying to bs us and i know they have no idea what they're doing and this is this is like you know a circus this is a mickey mouse show and they go home and they say to their spouse like i'm working for this like you know napoleon figure who just like has no idea what they're doing and that's how you develop what we call artificial harmony where everyone in the room is just like smiling and nodding and thinking like, this is total BS. I can't believe I'm putting up with this as opposed to the leader says, huh, this is really interesting. This is really hard. I don't have the playbook here, right? Jim, you know, you've got experience coming out of XYZ company. Like, could you uh, tell us how you think about this? You know, Susan, you know, what's your feeling on this, right? Like the, when you think about like, The president of the United States, you think of like a 40 something Barack Obama going into the White House as a two year senator, right? Mm -hmm. Did he have all the experience in the room? He surrounded himself with this incredible experience cabinet. He brought in Joe Biden, who had 30 years of experience with him uh, on him, uh, getting getting legislation passed in the House and Senate. And he said, I don't have all the experience in the room, but I'm the chosen leader here. So I'm going to lean on your experience and we can make the best decisions together. That's what authentic leadership looks like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really just wanted to hear you say that because we have, we we have, I have clients that will come into a session and be like, oh my God, Amanda, on Thursday, I have to do this. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Can you teach me how to do this before Thursday? And I'm like, no, like, no, like it's okay to... Figure it out as you go and be honest. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of wanted your take on it, and I love that you gave some like really clear, like specific language examples of how yeah. to do it because I think that's what trips people up the most, right? They maybe have the desire to be honest and authentic, but then when it comes to saying it, they're like, "How do I, how do I phrase this?" So thanks yeah. for yeah. you,
2: those concrete. You want your employees to go home saying like, "Wow, the twenty something I'm working for has so much integrity," um, right? He or she admitted that she didn't have the answer and asked me for help. I feel I can, I can work here. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm respected. I'm valued as opposed to, Oh, you know, we're just, you know, deal, you know, watching someone fake it. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. so awkward, so painful because it's so obvious when you're faking it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it is so obvious. We actually (laughs) just had a podcast guest on. who was talking about how vulnerability makes people feel even more connected to you. That vulnerability you can, you know, your gut instinct might be, it's going to turn people off if I don't know everything or I don't give them everything they want. When in fact, the opposite is true. That when you're vulnerable and you have the courage to say, I don't know, or I need help, or can someone else step up here? Who's better at me than this? That it actually makes people trust you more um, and feel more of an interpersonal connection with you. Um, So I want to jump back to your book. So the, the subtitle of your book, is because, you know, we love the book, is five conversations that unlock creativity, purpose, and results. And I know we won't have time to dive into all these conversations. Unfortunately, everyone will just have to buy the book like, in the show notes. But oh, which you. of these conversations is closest to your heart? And mm. would love for you to tell us why.
2: That's interesting. Um, no one's ever asked me that. It's
1: like picking Uh-oh. a favorite child, right? Uh-oh. Picking a favorite child. I know. Child. <laughs> I'm
2: like, oh my goodness. Um, you know, I would have to say, so what what jumped to mind immediately was um, the gifts chapter. And uh, just for the your listeners who aren't familiar with the book, the book is organized around five conversations that kind of build on each other. And it starts with what do you need to feel creative and resourceful? What do you need to do your best work? You know, kind of what we talked about at the at the top of the call in terms of self-care and like uh, what are the like the emotional needs you have. We talk about fears, like what are the fears that are holding your back? We don't talk enough about fear in the workplace, and it's but it's present. You know, most of like the negative or um, uh, corrosive, toxic behavior that you see in a workplace is related to unexpressed, unresolved fears. Right. We also talk about people's desires. Like, what do you really, really want? Like, just get honest with it. You know, do you want recognition? Do you want power? Do you want um, to be of service? Great. Let's talk about that. But let's also keep an eye out for when those desires can be derailing. Right. Because any desire overexpressed can take us you know, off a cliff, potentially. And then we feel like once we've kind of had those conversations, we're ready to talk about what are we really best in the world at? What are we uniquely talented at? What are our gifts? And I, I like this chapter maybe the most out of the whole book just because everyone can really relate to the idea of figuring out at some point that they're really good at something, but having never had the permission to value that before right? The thing we're best at is the thing that is effortless to us. And by virtue of being effortless, it's almost of no value to us, right? But wait a minute, Edward, I studied for seven years in medical school. That should be what I'm best at. That's my gift. Or I'm a lawyer or whatever, you know, title we've given ourselves by all of this hard work. I earned this degree, or I earned this body of knowledge. That's my gift. Actually, Your gift is that thing that you probably learned in childhood that came as a response to whatever environment you grew up in and has become this complete background thing that you do so well. And people are always amazed by it, but you're like, why would that have any value? Right? I didn't work at it. I didn't think about how to uh, develop it. I've just always been doing it. Right. So my gift of empathy that, I just used to like make friends and, and and date for most of my life, you know? It was actually a college professor who was like, you are so uniquely empathetic and you don't even realize it. And it probably comes from, you know, complications of your childhood that we we talked about earlier on. And, um, and by virtue of him shining that light on me and helping me understand that that was a special gift I had, it actually took my career in a completely new direction and eventually led to me Responding positively when Julia said, Edward, you should be my executive coach.
0: We love yeah. Julia. Shout out Julia, to Julia. Right. <laughs> for real. For real. Yes. I um Amanda and I work with a lot of clients who, in addition to CEOs and leaders, who are also like mid to senior career level employees and um who reach a certain point where they're like, This isn't working for me. This feels hard. This isn't in line with my gifts, but I don't want to throw it all away. And so yeah, And I'm just going to start sending them to that chapter of the book, <laughs> for real.
2: You know, there's, another, there's another great book that I would suggest for folks who are thinking about this idea of what is my gift, and that's uh, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And nice. um, in the, in Gay Hendricks kind of introduced this whole idea of the zone of genius, right? there's four different zones. There's like, there's, they're, they're called the zones of competence. And I'll just very quickly say, there's the zone of incompetence. I have no idea what I'm doing. There's a zone of competence. I'm a decent bartender, right? There's the zone of excellence. I'm really good at politics. I'm really good at marketing. And then there's the zone of genius, which is, um, you know, I might be, I might be pretty good at, at coaching, right? Or I might be, uh, I don't want to say that, you know, I'm one of the best in the world or something like that, but like that's this idea that like you would be like so we'll unique. say it thank you you're very <laughs> sweet <laughs> my 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 mother saying edward always be humble just like chimed in in my mind i was like okay oh. you know but no, like, we, got we, you. we want we want to find that thing that we're actually best in the world at right and the difference is the zone of excellence is that thing that you're really good at people pay you a lot of money to do it but it costs you something you end up depleted. been there you end up not really appreciating yourself or not feeling great about yourself, right? You may end up feeling like you are, you know, for lack of a better term, prostituting yourself in some way, Mm. selling out and doing this thing, people pay me money for it. But like, I don't know, but look, it bought this house or look, it pays for this lifestyle as opposed to right beyond that is the thing that you're probably really, really good at that people would maybe even pay you more for, but you don't value it yourself yet, right? You haven't figured out how, how to have a relationship with that. And the reason I like that chapter and I like this topic is because it can sometimes lead to radical transformations Mm -hmm. in how people spend their time and what people are doing with their lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that other book recommendation, the Big big leap. So you mentioned that one of your gifts or your, your, biggest gift is empathy, which one of your professors so astutely pointed out to you. Um, and, and your book focuses a lot on emotional intelligence. And we know that you know people skills or EQ does not, an empathy doesn't come naturally to everyone. So if if you're one of those people who is not naturally empathetic or intuitive, how can you learn to be a better people person as a leader?
2: I actually think that these um, these skills are accessible universally to everyone. It's just how much permission are we giving ourselves to access them, right? It's a little bit like learning a language. You know, when you learn a language, you can learn all the vocabulary and all the grammar, and you can say like, you know, yo yo hablo español, right? Or you can like really take it in and like develop this like personality in the other language. And then you like speak like native, right? You, you, you know, there's, there's people who are just like completely fluent in different languages. So they give their, so they give themselves permission, you know, like mm-hmm. I give myself myself permission to have this other personality called Eduardo, right. Who speaks Spanish and like, you know, can like hang out and like, nobody knows I speak English. Right. Cause I've like really taken on how to embody that. And, I think similarly, people tell themselves, well, I'm just not a people person or I'm not an emotional intelligence person. I don't have access to that. And I think that they're just not giving themselves permission, mm-hmm. right? Because we all have access to that. For some people, it definitely comes more naturally than others. And it has something to do with the environment they were raised in or, you know, the, the communication stuff. Parents, whatever, virtual context, right? Some cultures and some nations have like more warmth and more like, you know, kind of familiarity than others. But everyone can break through, right? It's just a question of what fears are holding you back? What story are you telling, are you telling yourself about, uh, about yourself, right? In terms of your relationship, who in your family or who in your history would you have to almost have a negotiation in your mind with, right, to embody a more emotionally intelligent philosophy or way of communicating, you know, like, well, I wasn't raised in that kind of family. Like a, a friend of mine says, like, we, we just don't talk about ourselves like that. We don't communicate with other people like that. Okay. That sounds like a fixed mindset, yeah, you know, I've got yeah. body more of a growth mindset and saying like, huh, that's really interesting. If other people can speak that language, I can too.
1: That's you great. Know? Cause we hear that all the time. I, I really, I all hear it time. quite often from clients, you know, people either are very confident in their EQ, um, or are like, I suck at this. Right. And so that, that right. to, to use it in that, that context of it's a language that we all can learn to speak. We can all get fluent in. Uh, I think is beautiful. Cause I agree. We're all human beings. We all have access yeah. to the same, you know, ways of emoting. So, um, I love that response. So in the book, you give so many um, amazing case studies of different clients, some of them like clearly named some of them, you know, uh, you know, the likeness is protected, depending on what the story (laughs) is. So I'm curious, what is the biggest lesson that you've ever learned from one of your clients? Maybe somebody that surprised you or like opened your eyes to something that you maybe weren't aware of before working with them?
2: Hmm. I would say it's related to what we were just talking about in terms of, you know, anybody can learn a new language, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there are some clients, like in the very beginning when we started working together, I maybe get like a little bit of a a hit or like an instinct, an intuition, like, I don't know if this is going to work, right? Or I don't mm-hmm. know if we're going to make it. We might, you know, kind of like right the boat a little bit, but I don't know if they're going to succeed in this role, right? And, and then they've had a personal breakthrough through the coaching or through the feedback. I mean, you know, we do these 360s and sometimes, you know, you've got grown men and women like sobbing, right. Mm -hmm. At the, at at a, in, in an office, um, when they're looking at the feedback and like the, the raw data as to the impact that they're having with people. And, and I've just seen unbelievable, miraculous transformations, you know, like the most hard headed like like one client, we I, I told him I went to one of his staff meetings and I said, "No more resting asshole face." You know, like when you're listening to people, you look like a total asshole. you had this like, "Oh no," oh. he's like, "That's just me thinking." I was like, "No, that's not thinking. That's like judging and like mm. you know conveying like you know disdain to the entire room." And like you know, couple months, couple years later, like. His entire persona in the office had changed. He started meditating. He started taking care of himself. And when he eventually left that business, you know, he had like 16 staff members take him out and tell him like how, you know, his impact and like the warmth that he conveys and tran, you know, how he transformed their lives and you know what a great mentor. And like this is a guy who like everyone feared in the business. Mm-hmm. And and I think that I just learned that you, you always have to give people the benefit of the doubt and give them have faith in their ability to transform. Right. Even when it seems totally hopeless, like there's no way this person's going to learn what they need to learn in the time they can do it. Right. They can do it if they really commit to it and if they open up and if they take that feedback in and say, I can learn a new language.
1: Yeah. Someone's going to hear that story and feel like they have a chance right like this that story yeah. is going to give someone listening yeah. to this episode hope and that makes me really excited all
2: right. All right well we if have... my client hears that story he's gonna be like oh i know that i know who that
1: is <laughs> <laughs> well good I mean, it, it, it had a happy ending so that's all that yeah. matters it really well, we have did. one last kind of meaty question before we dive into just a few little rapid fire so The last few years have obviously seen a lot of upheavals in the workplace. Some Mm. of them good, some of them kind of troubling, right? From all that has gone on in the world and in workplace culture. So I'm curious, what is your biggest hope for the future of the workplace?
2: Wow, I mean, my hope is, well, one, you know, and I may be this may be uh, counter to what a lot of people are thinking and feeling right now, is I do hope that people embrace going back to the office at some point, because I think that a lot of people are are suffering from a crisis of not belonging mm. and not feeling connected. And I think we've told ourselves that like the convenience of working from home is a valuable, or how would I say, there's a trade-off, right? It's a, it's a worthwhile trade-off to not going to the office if I can have all the conveniences of being at home. But like we've, studies have found that like interacting with people exclusively through a flat screen Like we are just like being drained over time of all the oxytocin of all the good neurochemicals. And we're, we're starting to suffer as a society, right. From not having more connection. I think businesses are starting to suffer because people just simply aren't getting together and developing that warmth and developing those relationships and solving the tough problems. So I really hope that at some point we all voluntarily say like, you know what, actually, having colleagues and going into a workplace and having that place in the corner where I got my coffee and where I had my lunch, like that was like a cool part of being a human being. And I kind of miss that. Right. That's one thing. And the second thing is I really hope that this whole idea of, you know, which is now like this resurgent idea, especially with like Elon Musk taking over Twitter and just like, you know, slashing and burning, like a lot of people are saying like, ah, the tough boss is back. Right. I really hope that that, just dies away again, right? Because I think bosses always need to make hard decisions. Sometimes they need to be tough, but this idea of being like the zero empathy leader is a really old antiquated idea that I hope, you know, dies along with like misogyny and racism in the workplace.
0: Yeah. Well, cheers to more empathy in the future (laughs) for all of us. So we have three rapid fire questions to end with. We do these with all of our guests. So you can give as short or long as answers as you want. So our first question is, Edward, what is one tip for working smart?
2: I think working smart comes down to paying attention to what gives you energy and what saps your energy, right?
0: Love that. (laughs) Love that. And then what is one tip for working happy?
2: Hmm. Um, Working happy, I think, comes down to remembering that all mistakes can be fixed, right? There are very few one-way doors, right? And that your value in the workplace ultimately comes down to the quality of your relationships, not just the quality of your work.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And finally, where can our listeners find you?
2: They can find me um, on socials. I'm at Edward L. Sullivan on all, all the socials. And my email address, if anyone's interested in talking about coaching, is uh, edward at velocitycoaching.com. And our book is available where books are sold, Leading with Heart.
1: (laughs) Well, Edward, we are so thankful to have you here. There's so many people that I like personally will be pinging this episode to just because I think it will. I think it will. I think it will give a lot of people a lot of hope about what they are capable of as leaders, what their leaders are capable of as leaders, and hopefully what workplaces can be um, both now and in the future. So thank you for being the change that we certainly want to see in the work world and in the world overall. And we can't wait to put this episode out into the world.
2: Thank you. And thank you both for bringing such warmth and joy to your work Mm -hmm. and to this experience. It was so so fun catching up with both of you. Thank Thank you you so much.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of full plate, full cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe,
1: leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Cup. that's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E, F-U-L-L-C-U-P, or online at www.FullPlateFullCup.com, www.F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E. F-U-L-L-C-U-P dot com.